Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. Today our topic is going to be worshiping in spirit and truth. Let's begin today in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, beginning in the 19th verse, it says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mount, and ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mount, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is the Spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Verse 23 says, But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Today we're the worshipers. We were created to worship. It's important that we understand what it truly means to worship and what specifically it entails. If we're designed to do it, we should desire and strive to do it well. The word worship in this verse means to do reverence to, to go down on one's knees, to do obeisance to. The concordance says that it means to kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior, to worship, ready to fall down and prostrate oneself, to adore on one's knees. The basic meaning of this word in the opinion of most scholars is to kiss. On Egyptian reliefs, worshippers are represented with outstretched hands, throwing a kiss to the deity. This word has been described as the kissing ground between believers as the bride and Christ as the heavenly bridegroom. It suggests the willingness to make all necessary physical gestures of obeisance. This is a much different way of thinking about worship than we're normally accustomed to. As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, we desire to become more intimate with Him. We desire to show our love and our affection for Him. This is how we do it. We worship which shows our reverence, our awe, our esteem, our love, and our appreciation for him. It means that we humble ourselves before him, that we submit ourselves to him and to his will, that we look beyond ourselves to him who is our provider, our sustainer, our everything. That's what worship means. It's an exalting of him. It's an extolling of his virtues. It's a telling and showing to him how much we value having him in our life. We understand our position of inferiority when compared to him and his perfection. We understand our place of subjugation under His perfect, infallible will. We understand our place of submission under His loving, merciful, gracious care. That's why we worship. We know that we can't make it on our own, and that we're nothing without Him. Our worship acknowledges that we can't do it ourselves, that we can't provide for ourselves, can't sustain ourselves, and can't save ourselves. It's an acknowledgement that we need Him in our life. That's why we need to worship. And that's why it's the key to intimacy with the Lord. But why is it that sometimes we don't find that to be the case in the lives of some Christians? We see people worship, but then we also at the same time don't see the effects of an intimate walk with the Lord. What's the reason for such a discrepancy? Hebrews 12 and 18 in the ESV says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The fact that there's acceptable worship implies, just by its existence, that there's worship that isn't acceptable. So what would make worship not acceptable, and what constitutes worship that is? John 4 and 24 said, 
God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Must is the key word. That's a command. There's no ambiguity or uncertainty about it. We must do it. There's no way around that. Since that's the case, if we worship not in spirit and truth, but in some other way, we're deviating from the way that God desires to receive worship from his people. We want to do God's will, and we want our worship to be acceptable. So then we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? And what does that actually look like? We need to look at each of these individually. The first one is worshiping in spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way God designed us, spirit, soul, and body. Our spirit is the most intimate part of our being. It's the deepest part of us, the part of us that reaches out to God, the part that touches the supernatural. Our worship has to originate from our spirit, not our soul or our body. Our worship isn't just some physical action. It's not just the mindless raising of our hands. It's not just the mindless moving of our mouth in vain repetition. It's not of the body at all. Neither is it of the soul. The soul is our mind, will, and emotions. It's not just some type of emotional state of ecstasy that we find ourselves in. It's not just some intellectual exercise, nor is it even a decision that we consciously make. It's far more than that. It's deeper. It's a deep inward longing of the heart after God. It's a groaning of our spirit after the Holy Spirit. It's an inward, deep-seated desire for intimacy with God. It's spiritual, supernatural. There's nothing natural about it at all. Worship isn't just a one-time thing either. It's a lifestyle. It's a way that we conduct ourselves in life and in our relationship with God. Romans 12 and 1 in the ESV says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We worship in spirit through spiritual worship. We allow the worship to flow through us. It starts in our spirit, and then it influences our soul and our bodies. That's how we become a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves up to God to submit ourselves to Him and to His will. We surrender ourselves to be used by Him. That's an act of worship. The spirit is the part of us that's designed to control the soul and body, and we have to let it do what it's designed to do. When we do this, Worship isn't just something that we do. It's something that we are. It's not just an action. It's a way of being. That's what worship is meant to be for God's people. And the only thing standing in the way of that taking place is ourselves. The second thing is worshiping in truth. The word truth in this verse in the Greek means truth, but not merely truth is spoken. Truth of idea, reality, sincerity, truth in the moral sphere, divine truth revealed to man, straightforwardness. In the Greek culture, this word was synonymous with reality. The concordance also goes on to say, sincerity of mind and integrity of character or a mode of life and harmony with divine truth. We have to ask ourselves, are we being truthful when we worship? Does our worship reflect the reality of our life, the reality of our experience? Is it a true and honest reflection of our walk with God? Or is our worship just filled with grandiose $10 words that just sound good but mean nothing? Words we don't understand and don't want to understand. Are we worshiping because we want to? Or are we doing so begrudgingly, feeling like we have to, like we're being forced? Are we actually grateful for what we're worshiping God for? Do we actually believe that our God is as great as we're saying that he is? Is it coming from a place of honesty? The answer to these questions matter a lot. 
our worship's outward affirmations must worship our inward realities. If they don't, then we're not being truthful. We're being facetious, which really means that we're lying. We're lying to ourselves, and even worse, we're lying to God. You may fool people from time to time, but you definitely never fool God. He always knows when he's being lied to and when we're being less than honest. So worshiping without really believing anything that we're saying isn't worship. That's not acceptable. God will not be mocked. He won't be lied to to his face and pretend that that's an honorable sacrifice because it's not and it never will be. We must be truthful. We have to say what we believe and stand on that as we worship and honor God for who he is and what he's done in our life. God's not looking for perfection. He looks for honesty. He simply wants you to be straightforward with him. There's the old saying that says honesty is the best policy. And that's not just true in the natural. It's even more important in the spiritual. Like we saw with worshiping in spirit, the definition for truth said, a mode of light and harmony with divine truth. That's what worshiping in truth should lead to. Worship changes things as it draws us closer to God, as it creates a deeper level of intimacy between us and Him, and more closely aligns us with truth. We gain more discernment, more understanding, more clarity about the God who we worship, which changes the way that we live. Our words and actions change, and they become aligned with God's will, who is the God who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Message Bible says for verses 21 to 24, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father, neither here in this mountain, nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of the day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews. But the time is coming. It has in fact come. When what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves perform in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship Him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves, in adoration. This leads us to the next thing that we need to look at. If this is what worship is and how it should be done, where is it that people go wrong? It said, you worship guessing in the dark. People today are worshiping blindly. In the King James, verse 22 says, Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The classic Amplified says, You Samaritans do not know what you are worshiping. You worship what you do not comprehend. We do know what we are worshiping. We worship what we have knowledge of and understand. For after all, salvation comes from among the Jews. People have no knowledge, no understanding, no comprehension about what they're worshiping. The reality is that everybody's worshiping something. People worship money, sex, fame, and popularity. A lot of people even worship themselves, which boils down to having the wrong object of worship, having an inordinate amount of love for the wrong things, making a savior of something that can't save you. That's been a problem since the world began, and it always will be. A lot of people, even a lot of Christians, worship God, but they don't really know who they're worshiping. They know about Him. They know what he said. They know what he's done. But they don't know him in any intimate way. In the Young's literal translation, which keeps the Greek in its original tense, it says, Ye worship what ye have not known. We worship what we have known, because the salvation is of the Jews. This gets to the heart of the problem. Many people are worshiping a God that they've never known. 
These people are like the Athenians, who were sacrificing on the altar of the unknown God. Paul said in Acts 17 and 23, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. The Living Bible says, For as I was out walking, I saw your many altars, and one of them had this inscription on it, To the unknown God. You have been worshiping him without knowing who he is, and now I wish to tell you about him. God isn't looking for ignorant worship from his people. He wants us to worship with a personal knowledge and a personal understanding of him. We have to know him through having a personal relationship with him. We need to spend time in his word, time in the house of God, time in prayer communing with him. The same way that intimacy in the natural comes with knowing someone on a deep level, the same is true in the spiritual. We have to have real, first-hand, experiential knowledge of God. When we don't have that type of knowledge of God, something will fill the spiritual vacuum that's left by His absence. The most common and the most dangerous idol isn't money or fame or anything else like that. It's the self. In order to best understand what happens when the self becomes our idol, we have to go back to the first time that this ever happened. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in the 10th verse, which is speaking of the devil. It says, All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? This is the first time that self became an idol. Verses 13 to 14 tell us, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Heart is the same word used to refer to our spirit. Instead of a spirit reaching out, longing for God, instead of having the desire to love and to know God in a deeper way, he was only thinking about himself. He was created to worship God. He was the lead musician, the choir director of heaven. The last phrase of Ezekiel 28 and 13 tells us, The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. He was designed to be a vessel of worship, but he didn't want to be a vessel. He wanted to be the object of worship. He didn't want worship to go through him. He wanted it to go to him. That's the problem, and it's directly traceable to his pride, which is really the fundamental sin that underlies all others. Four verses later, verse 17 says, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. His heart was lifted up, but he was meant to be lifting up God. We know as Christians that we're commanded that we must lift up Jesus. That's not optional. We must do that. That's what we're designed to do. But when our heart is lifted up, we don't do it, because the self, the carnal nature, tries to take God's place. Pride attempts to drive a wedge between us and God, and it tries to rob us of our intimacy with Him through discouraging and redirecting our worship, 
getting us to direct it towards ourself instead of towards God. It's not just the devil who does this. Now people who have fallen prey to his attacks and his influence have fallen for the same lies. We find that all throughout scripture, but one important example that stands out is in Luke chapter 18, when we find that the Pharisee and the publican both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee's words were just like the devil's. In verses 11 and 12, it says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Everything was I, I, I. He used I five times. The devil also used I five times. It's the same pattern because it's the same spirit, the spirit of inversion, the same spirit who calls good evil and evil good. Inversion is his mode of operation, and Isaiah 14 is where it all started. The Pharisee was focused on himself. He wasn't focused on God at all. He wasn't talking to God at all. It said he prayed thus with himself. He wasn't worshiping in spirit and truth. He was worshiping from his carnal mind as he put on a false facade. That's worship that isn't acceptable. That's what it looks like. And it's made all the more obvious when we put it next to what the publican did. Having both of these right next to each other is to show the clear discrepancy that exists between honest worship and dishonest worship. The publican said in verse 13, And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This man did worship in spirit and truth. He had the deep inward longing for God. He was honest with God about his condition. He called out to him with a broken and a contrite heart. He wanted to go deeper with God. He was searching for truth. He wanted intimacy, which is what made the difference. This was worship that led to something more. It didn't end in and of itself. It led to knowing God and starting a relationship with him. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. When we worship God, we exalt him and his name. But when we worship ourselves, we foolishly attempt to exalt ourselves. We all want to be exalted. We all want to be valued, respected, and appreciated. We all want to receive affirmation for things that are worthy of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of human nature. That's good. The Lord's not against us being exalted, but he is against us exalting ourselves. That's not our place. He is the exalted one, and thus he's the one who exalts who he chooses to exalt. Matthew 23 and 12 says, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Nobody wants to be abased, and we don't have to be. That happens when we follow the devil's path, the Pharisee's path, when we try to exalt ourselves. Even King Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4 and 37 in the classic Amplified, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, whose works are all faithful and right, and whose ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to abase and humble. When we humble ourselves, when we acknowledge God as the superior, higher power, the one who holds all power in heaven and in earth, as our creator, our father, our friend, and our savior, and come before him, telling him of our desire to grow deeper with him, we will be exalted. The servant of the master will become the greatest, not because of anything inherent in the servant, but because of the master's grace. The servant is us. We're the one who lives the sacrificial life as our spiritual worship to God. In John 4 and 24, the word worshiper only appears once in scripture, 
That reveals its importance and significance. We're the worshipers. He's speaking to us. It's our calling to worship God in spirit and in truth. We should come before him in a spirit of worship and tell him exactly how much we love and appreciate him. Worship is powerful. It's worship that always precedes victory. It's worship that opens up the windows of heaven. It's worship that brings us into the throne room of God. Worship isn't some arduous task to just be gone through begrudgingly as fast as possible. It's an honor and a privilege to get to bless the Most High God, and we can never allow ourselves to view it as anything less than that. When we worship, we can say with Isaiah and Isaiah 25 and 1 in the classic Amplified, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, even purposes planned of old and fulfilled in faithfulness and truth. Let's close in prayer. Lord, today we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. Lord, today we come before you in a spirit of worship. Lord, we want to tell you how much we love you, how much we appreciate you, how much we respect you and value having you in our life. Lord, today we worship you for who you are. We worship you for all that you've done. Lord, we ask for the wisdom to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. We come before you to lay ourselves as a living sacrifice on the altar before you. We thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within us so that you can live through us as you guide us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. We surrender our life, our minds, and our hearts, and our will. And we thank you that you're going to do your will in and through us as you use us as a vessel. We thank you that we're a vessel for worship, that it's going to go through us and not to us. And Lord, we thank you that when we worship, it will inspire others around us to worship too. Our worship won't end in and of itself, but it will go on to bear abundant fruit. Lord, we give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to worship in spirit and in truth, and to have Jesus as a part of your life today, all you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for his free gift of eternal life. Now, if you prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. We want to thank everybody for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you want even more of the Kingsword, you can go to our YouTube page at Kingsword Ministry, visit our TikTok page at Kingsword Bible, and visit our Instagram page at Kingsword Bible Study. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all, and we will see you next week as we continue to study the Kingsword together.